welcome to All the Books We've Never Read, the podcast that encourages you to tackle those literary white whales in your life. Whether it's a classic you read Cliff Notes on in college, or the 500-page tome you really want to read but can never seem to get through, I'm Sarah the Library Girl, your book club host and fellow Never Finisher, and we'll get through this together. So last week, when we left off with Little Dora, Afri had had her quote-unquote dream, um, that kind of sketchy dream with, that ended with her husband nearly choking her out. And we're just going to jump right into Chapter 5 today and um, kind of get moving here. Um, so the next day, Arthur tries to get his mother to talk about whatever secrets his father was died with. Um, and remember that he had brought home this pocket watch that has a little slip of paper in it. And um, there's a lot of mis- mystery around that. Um, so he's trying to find out whether or not his father had some sort of unrighted wrongs that he had left behind, um, because he just wants to clear the family's name and, um, kind of find out more about his father in general, but his mother kind of refuses to discuss anything, um. During this conversation, Jeremiah Flintwich inserts himself, which he seems really good at doing, at being where he doesn't belong, um, and Arthur has gotten enough of the situation, so he tells his mother that he is done with the family business, and we get the feeling that he's probably been thinking about this for a while. It's not just a spur-of-the-moment thing. Um, he's just had enough of the way his family has been. Um... When Mrs. Clendon gets this news, she immediately asks Jeremiah Flintwinch if he wants to um, step up and take Arthur's place, which, of course, he is more than happy to do. Um, But before Arthur departs his gloomy family home, he actually walks around the home, and we get a little picture of just how gloomy this is. There's a lot of... um, cemetery and funereal language and used in describing this house. Um, We find him curiously fascinated by the young woman who has been keeping his mother company and lending her services in sewing and kind of serving lunch and stuff like that. We are given a picture of a physically diminutive girl of about 22 years old who is punctual, hardworking, noiseless, and shy. Those are some of the adjectives used for her. Um, And Arthur is intrigued by her and wonders about her story and why she's employed by his mother. And he resolves to watch her and kind of figure out why exactly this girl, this little Dorrit, is working for his mother. She's just an intriguing character to him. Um, So before we go on to more about little Dorrit and find out what Arthur finds, let's pause for a second and talk about debtor's prisons. So I don't know about you, but going into this book, I had very little idea about how debtor's prisons worked. Honestly, it seemed kind of crazy and ineffective to me. Like, you can't pay someone back, so you're thrown in jail where you continue not to be able to pay them back. So that's what it seemed like to me, and little did I know, in the time of Little Dorrit, that was pretty much exactly how it worked. If we were to see a similar situation today to what people in Dickensian England experience, we would probably call it a form of modern-day slavery. So let's hear a little history lesson, shall we? Uh, The next bit, pretty much most of what I'm going to read from here on out, is compliments of Wikipedia, so thank you. I drew this from two different articles, one on debtors' prisons in general and one on the Marshall Sea Prison. 
So in theory, destitute persons who are unable to pay a court-ordered judgment would be incarcerated in these prisons, debtors' prisons, until they had worked off their debt via labor or secured outside funds to pay their balance. So either they worked it off somehow in prison or their family helped them pay it off. Um, the product of their labor went towards both the cost of their incarceration and their accrued debt. So it actually cost money for them to be imprisoned, and they had to pay that money themselves. So specifically in England, during the 18th and 19th centuries, 10,000 people were imprisoned for debt each year. A prison term did not alleviate the person's debt, however. An inmate was typically required to repay the creditor in full before being released. So if his sentence, it wasn't like his sentence was for a year, you stayed in jail for a year, you got out, your debts were, were forgiven or whatever. You had to somehow still pay your, pay your debt, but you were in prison during this time. So in Great Britain, debtors' prisons varied in, in the amount of freedom they allowed the debtor. So with a little money, a debtor could pay for some freedoms, like we see here in Little Dorrit. Um, and some prisons even allowed inmates to conduct business and receive visitors, again, like Little Dorrit. Um, others even allowed inmates to live a short distance outside the prison, a practice known as the liberty of the rules. Life in these prisons was far from pleasant, and the inmates were forced to pay for their keep, as we see in our chapter about the father of the Marshall Sea. Speaking of fathers in the Marshall Sea, the father of our author, Charles Dickens, was sent to the very same prison that we are reading about in Little Dorrit, which later inspired Dickens to advocate for debtors' prison reform. And a little sidebar here, Mr. Bacaber in David Copperfield is another character who has had to deal with debtors' prisons, and he is based pretty clearly off of Charles Dickens' uh, father, John. Um, so in specific with the Marshall Sea, the Marshall Sea was lo located in London, just south of the River Thames, and was known in particular for its inc incarceration of the poorest of London's debtors, and I think that's kind of what we're seeing here with the Dorrit family. Over half of the population of England's prisons in the 18th century were in jail, in jail because of debt. Run privately for profit, as were all English prisons in the 19th century, the Marshalsea looked like an Oxbridge college and functioned as an extortion racket. And I noticed that they used the word um, collegians when referring to um, the prisoners and the other, you know, the other inmates a lot. And I was really curious about that and... I think that had to do with basically just the actual physical structure, um, the way it was courtyards and rooms along the side. I think that's what they're meaning here by Oxbridge College, the combination of Oxbridge, Cambridge, Oxford and Cambridge, excuse me. Um, so debtors in the 18th century who could afford prison fees had access to a bar, a shop and restaurant, all these things we see in these chapters um, when Arthur Clennam gets locked inside. He has to stay in what's basically the tavern. Um, and they ret retained the crucial, crucial privilege of being allowed out, allowed out during the day, which gave them a chance to earn money for their creditors. Um, we don't really see that in this book, so I don't know what the situation was here. Um, maybe just uh, William Dwight didn't want to leave, which could very well be. Um, everyone else was crammed into one of nine small rooms with dozens of others, possibly for years for the most modest of debts, which increased as unpaid prison fees accumulated. So, again, the expense of being in prison just added to the burden of these debts and made it impossible for them to actually pay off and be released. So, much of the Marshall Sea prison was demolished in the 1870s, 
though parts of it were used as shops and rooms into the 20th century. And a local library now stands on the site, which I think is poetic justice at its finest. Upon its destruction, Dickens wrote, It is gone now, and the world is none the worse without it. Chapter 6 lets us see the inside of our third prison of this book so far, as we get a history of who we later find out is Mr. Dorrit, but is, who is here referred to as the father of the Marshalsea. Sea. By the book's description, he was, um, at that time, at the time of his imprisonment, a very amiable and very helpless middle-aged gentleman who was going out again directly. Necessarily, he was going out again directly because the Marshalsea Sea lock never turned upon a debtor who was not. So here we see a man who is imprisoned, but optimistic that he will be out as soon as possible. But as we soon read, he becomes so comfortable with the apparent safety of the prison, but with no creditors actively knocking his door down, that he soon become a fixture of the prison. And as soon as the turnkey that admitted him dies, he inherits the dubious honor of being the longest established figure at the Marshalsea, hence earning the name the father of the Marshalsea. Here he brings his family, here he welcomes his youngest child into the world, and here he holds court, a shabby fallen gentleman, presiding over the prison yard like a monarch with other inmates, paying homage and tribute to him as they come and go. It's a sad, false gentility, really, and he cuts quite the pitiful figure. Yet, no one dares to shatter his dream world. Moving on to chapter 7, we learn about the other institution of this debtor's prison, the child of the Marshall Sea. Her her mother having died while she was young, and her father being largely absent in mind and occupied with his status in the prison, the child, whose name we learn is Amy, is taken in hand by the old turnkey, who we learn is called Bob, for it is he who takes her to be christened and is named her godfather. He gives her as much a childhood as, as is possible for one who, though youngest in her family, assumes most of the responsibility. We learn of how she secures a future for her sister by gaining her dancing lessons, how she takes it upon herself to learn millinery so that she might have a skill to earn money, and how she tries at least to secure a job, well, multiple jobs, for Tip, her hapless brother, who can't seem to hold anything down. As she grows older, she takes on a protective role towards her father, shielding his pride from the knowledge that both she and her older sister have to work, and that her brother himself has become an inmate of the Marshall Sea. I have a hard time with this, as Mr. Dort's lack of actual fatherly skills for all he is called father makes me want to slap him silly. Yet, th through it all, Amy respects, honors, and loves her father. Perhaps she sees that he is of weaker character and cannot help it. In any case, the example of Amy Dort is something to be admired. So, after this little look at the history of the Dort family, we find ourselves again where we left off with Arthur. Um, he has followed Amy home to the Marshalsea from his mother's house, and upon inquiring after the name of Dorrit, he meets Frederick Dorrit, the brother of William, the uncle who has helped Fanny, the eldest Dorrit child, get a job as a dancer. So Frederick takes Arthur in to be received by the father of the Marshalsea, as is tradition, and here Arthur comes face to face with Amy. Amy is flustered, but luckily Frederick has already forewarned Arthur not to speak of how he knows Amy, lest um, William be embarrassed by his daughter having to work. So there's a ton of awkwardness that ensues with William hinting at the monetary tribute that is accustomed to his title as father of the Marshalsea, and Amy shrinking further and further into herself. By the end of the chapter, 
All of Arthur's curiosities about Amy's position are answered, and he's left wondering if perhaps his family had something to do with her family going into such great debt. Um, hence his mother's kindness, such as it was, towards Amy. Oh yeah, and we learn that if you're behind the gate when it's locked for the night, prisoner or not, you're stuck till morning, and will have to pay to sleep on a dirty old table. Did I mention that this debtor's prison thing was pretty much a crazy racket? So that's pretty much it for this week's reading, um, and now it's time for character roll call. So this week, um, in chapters 5 through 8, that's what we read, um, we have Arthur Clennam again, we have Jeremiah Flintridge again, we have Mrs. Clennam again, um, and then we have the father of the Marshalsea, who we learn is named William Dort, and his family, his wife, who is unnamed, eldest daughter, Fanny, um, son Edward, who was called Tip, and then the baby who was born in the Marshall Sea, the child of the Marshall Sea, who we learn is called Amy Dorrit. We have the turnkey, who we learn is at least called Bob, whether that has, is his name or not. We have Dr. Haggage, who, as one of my friends pointed out, um, runs his fingers through his hair before delivering the child, which seems to be his idea of washing up, uh, which I thought was funny, and she thought was funny. thought I would share that. And then we have Mrs. Bangham, this random lady who happens to have brandy on and some midwifery skills. Um, I don't know if she's going to come in at any at all else, um, but she was given a name, so she must be semi-important. Um, yes, I mentioned the siblings, and then we have Frederick Dorrit, the uncle of um, Amy, or William's brother. And I think... Aside from random other collegians or inmates, um, that is all for our characters this week. Um, I hope you enjoyed this week's reading, and I'm looking forward to joining you guys again next week as we read the next four chapters, I believe. Um, I posted a outline on Instagram and Facebook that's got our chapter schedule for the next, well, actually for the rest of the book, so you can check those out to find out what we're reading week by week. Um... And I will talk to you again next week. Um, have a lovely week and happy reading. Reading books together cause we can do it all though. This is all the books we've never read. All the books we did not read is written and produced by me, Sarah the Library Girl, and our theme song is by myself as well. This week's sources are Wikipedia, the article on debtors' prisons, and the article on the Marshall Sea Prison.